The 53rd New York Film Festival is right around the corner. Since 1963, NYFF has brought the best in world cinema to Lincoln Center, featuring established auteurs as well as fresh new talent. This year's edition is no different, with the latest from stateside favorites like Todd Haynes, Steven Spielberg, Michael Moore, and Danny Boyle, as well as international auteurs like Ho Shao Shen, Michelle Gondry, Chantal Ackerman, and Apichapong Wersithikal. The closing night selection comes from acclaimed actor Don Cheadle, who makes his directorial debut with Miles Ahead, the highly anticipated biopic of jazz legend Miles Davis. In addition to the main slate selections, the festival also includes newly restored classics, sidebars featuring exciting new works in documentary, avant-garde and immersive media, filmmaker talks, shorts programs, special events, and much more. Visit filmlink.org NYFF for more info. Film Society of Lincoln Center, you're listening to The Close-Up. Each week we bring you in-depth conversations with some of the biggest names in filmmaking. It's September 16th, 2015. I'm Michael Odmark, one of the show's producers. The 53rd New York Film Festival is only nine days away, and here on the show we're counting down with archival episodes that feature some of the stars of this year's lineup. Today you'll hear a conversation with director Robert Zemeckis whose new film, The Walk, stars Joseph Gordon-Levitt as Philippe Petit, the high-wire artist who famously strung his wire between the tops of the Twin Towers for a death-defying display in 1974. The film will have its world premiere on opening night of this year's NYFF. This interview comes from the 2012 New York Film Festival, where Robert Zemeckis premiered his last feature, Flight. That film, which starred Denzel Washington as an alcoholic airline pilot, went on to receive Academy Award nominations for Best Screenplay and Lead Performance. During the festival, Zemeckis joined Director of Programming Richard Pena on stage for one of our HBO Director's Dialogues. In addition to discussing Flight, their far-reaching conversation spanned the director's four-decade career. From his 80s blockbusters like Back to the Future and Who Framed Roger Rabbit, to his ventures into CGI animation with films like A Christmas Carol and The Polar Express. The 53rd New York Film Festival continues the tradition of insightful conversations with filmmakers, including our on-cinema masterclass with Ho Shao Shen, HBO Director's Dialogues with Todd Haynes, Michael Moore, and Jia Jiang Ke, and free NYFF Live Talks every day at 7 p.m. in our amphitheater. For more information, head to filmlink.org NYFF. But for now, let's listen in to Richard Pena in conversation with Robert Zemeckis at the 50th New York Film Festival. Thanks so much for being here with us. My pleasure. It's an honor. So, you're from the south side of Chicago. Did, were you one of those people who grew up going to the Clark Cinema to see all those legendary movies that were being screened there? Or how did you get involved in no, I was cinema? Further, I was further south than that. Um, <laughs> no, I, uh, uh, but I did see movies mostly in the th- when they were in their third run down at the... Uh, I grew up in a neighborhood called Roseland, so I went to the Roseland Theater. And what were your early movie experiences, the films that really marked you? Well, I remember my first movie was The Blob. That's, and, and, and why not? Yeah, yeah, no, that was the first, my first film memory was seeing The Blob. And then I think, and then the second was The Seventh Voyage of Sinbad, the Ray Harryhausen. So uh, I think that's, you know, where I, both big special effects movies. Right. Right. And then you went off to film school at USC. Tell us about your time in film school. How was that? And what did you really learn from film school? Well, film school was great, and uh, you know, USC film school was great. I mean, the thing that was the the thing that was there were three things that, especially coming from the south side of Chicago, that film school provided me was um, uh, the ability to make movies as cheaply as you could back in those days because they had equipment, and you know, really all your your whole budget went for film stock. Um, and also to see a lot of movies, because those were the days before video. And USC had this uh, great relationship with all the studios. And the studios would let them, um, they would open their vaults 
and they would in the film society in the uh, in the cinema school we would we would do weekends like we would do Frank Capra weekends we would do you know John Ford weekends you know four movies on Saturday four movies on Sunday and um, got to just see a ton of movies and and of course the third thing and the most important thing was being in this pressure cooker with all these people who loved cinema I mean they were just you know just all you did was talk about it constantly so it was uh, it was great for me were there any particular teachers or lessons you remember that really stayed with you from that experience or was it the whole package yeah they, they taught us uh, never make a movie with uh, kids animals or old people <laughs> <laughs> this was the mantra huh? this was the mantra this is the mantra yeah and um, no there was a, there I, I, I had a, a I had two great writing teachers one was uh, Mort Zarkov and uh, another was Erwin Blacker, and they were both TV guys. They wrote TV, and they taught me so many, so many great writing tricks. I mean, it was really, you know, just, you know, like, you always got to have the hold the horses character. Somebody's got to hold the horses. You know, you got to write that guy in, you know, stuff like that. You know, so, you know, great, great stuff. So after you finished up by 26, I guess, you're already making your first feature. How, how did that happen? That's a pretty quick transition. Yeah, that was a quick transition. That was the, but, but, you know, that was in the days when, you know, you know, young directors were, you know, they, you know, we had these trailblazers. You know, we had uh, George Lucas and Steven Spielberg. And, and, and it was uh, because of Steven. Uh, Steven came to USC with his movie um, Sugarland Express. And um, I was blown away because I think he, he I, I don't really know, I, I think he made that movie when it was like, I want to say 19 or 20 or something like that, or 21, maybe a little older. Um, and uh, so he was immediately my hero. And after the film uh, was finished, I, I came up to him and I, I, I said, hey, I got this film I made here at this film school. Would you like to see it? And he said, sure, I'd like to see it. And so I kept calling his office and calling. Finally, he said, yeah, let's, let's look at it. And he set up a screening room at Universal, and I ran the movie for him. And he loved it. And he loved it. And he said, you know what? You stay, let's stay in touch. And, um, and uh, so I did. And uh, my writing partner and I, Bob Gale, we wrote the screenplay 1941, which actually found its way to Stephen, who um, decided to direct it. And um, and in the process of working with him on that movie, we were also on the side writing I Want to Hold Your Hand, which was my first movie. And um, when it was finished, um, I handed him the screenplay to critique. And he read it and he said, you should direct this. And I said, yeah, yeah well, what do we have to do? And he said, let me, let, me, let, me, let me make a couple of phone calls. And so he called Sid Scheinberg, who is the head of Universal, and I think the deal that he made with Sid was, I don't know this for sure, but I think the deal is he said, you give this guy a shot, and if he you know, loses his mind or you know, whatever, has a nervous breakdown, I'll come in and finish the movie. I think that's, even though it's against Directors Guild rules, I think that's the deal he made. So what was, could you describe what was Hollywood like back then? Was it, I mean, we have a sort of myth that it was much more open than today or whatever. What was it like for someone, a young man like you coming up? Well, I mean, I guess, I guess, you know, the thing, the thing that I, the thing that I think, and I really think that this is true, I really think that there was more of a, of a sense of risk taking. Um, that I, and I really, and I think that, uh, in my case, anyway, I think that you know, if I could pitch a movie to a, a studio executive and they could sense how passionate I was, they would they would they would make it because they're they're thinking, well, I can't measure any of this anyway, but at least he's passionate. I got that going for me, and they would go for it. And I and I think and that's the thing that I I think is the most the, the thing that's missing is, um, um, you know, a filmmaker's passion doesn't get the filmmaker anywhere in Hollywood today. So from there you went on to make used cars, which, you know, I was in Chicago for a while. I think I saw it in Chicago, maybe right. at the Chicago Film Festival in about 1980, I think, or yeah, probably. something yeah. like that. Yeah. And, you know, and that film was warmly received critically and whatever, but what happened to the film in terms of its marketing and <laughs> distribution? Well, distri I don't think it was released in half the country. 
Um, I really don't. I mean, it was kind of a weird. It was, you know. Uh, uh, you know, it's an amazing script. I mean, oh yeah, the, the and, idea and, that you and, got that through people. And here's the thing: it's one of those <laughs> movies that that everybody sort of sees because it for a while it was the it ran on cable TV when when cable TV was first starting out. That was one of the main. They just ran it like a loop. Um, <laughs> but um, yeah, it was well. What you learn is you learn that you learn making your early films is that you learn that you have to you have to be involved. You know, when you're a young filmmaker, I remember when I did my first movie and I thought, you know, I was driving onto the studio lot and, I, you know, there was this whole infrastructure. Um, um, and um, I thought, okay, this is great. I'm making a movie in, at the studio. And I remember going to my first marketing meeting uh, after we had finished the movie and they said, so what do you want us to do? I said, oh, I got to do the advertising too? Okay, I'll get right on it. Um, so, you know, you kind of learn, you learn that you have to stay involved with all the different, basically making, making the movie is 50% of the job. You know, you got to, then you got to take care of it. So despite good reviews and whatever, I remember Pauline Kael, I think, gave it a, yeah, a yeah. real rave at the time and whatever. It followed with a sort of fallow period, I guess, until Romancing the Stone. You didn't work on any features. What was that period like for you? What kind of things were you doing then? Well, I was just, well, I was looking for work as a director, and um, um, the word on me was, he doesn't know how to make movies that make money, and he's unlucky. So those were, though, that was so my, that like was that. my handle, right, right, right. <laughs> um, um, so it was a really, it was a long dry period uh, and, and the movies that they wanted me to make were the movies I didn't want to make. You know, they offered me a lot of teen high school comedy movies because I made these, I made a movie about teenage kids. Um, the good news was, was that during that, during that period, um, Bob Gale and I wrote, wrote Back to the Future. Uh, that's what we were working on. Um, but um, it wasn't until Michael Douglas Basically, you know, stepped up and said, um, um, "I want this guy, it, despite of what you say, because you know, whatever it was, he said, you know, I think he said, I like, I like the energy, you know, I like the energy in his movies, and so he, he, he you know, he stepped up and 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 said to the studio, this is the guy I want to do Romancing the Stone.' So, how much of the script was ready with Romancing the Stone? Oh, the script was very crippled. I mean, the script was very, very crippled when we started, but I kind of knew what to do. And you know, when when you're when you're in a, a director in a situation like I was in, that's the kind of project you have to look for. You have to look for a very crippled screenplay that you know how to fix, because that's the job you can get. Obviously, if it was a great screenplay, they would have sent it to Sidney Pollack. <laughs> so they, you know, they you know, so you know, they, so I had to find these these sort of wounded these wounded screenplays that I could then that I could then help the writer, you know. Uh, uh, who's Diane Thomas, who's a wonderful writer, um, you know, and pu pull it together. And how did Back to the Future evolve? You mentioned you wrote it, I guess, early 80s. By the time you got to make it, what had changed about it and what form had it taken? Well, okay, so like everything, in the, in, in, like everything in the day, um, handed it to Stephen, okay, when we first wrote it. And he said, oh my God, he said, uh, this is great. And he, I said, well, Stephen, I think there's a problem. And he said, what's that? I said, you produced, I want to hold your hand and use cars. They were both failures at the box office. I said, if you produce a third movie and it fails, my career is, I think, going to be over. And he said, <laughs> you're probably right. He said, you're probably right. And so I <clears throat> said, so, you know, I'm going to have to go off and look for another movie to do. And he said, yeah, I understand that, I understand it. So then, in the meantime, we, Back to the Future was turned down and I've got every rejection letter, it was turned down by absolutely every studio, every single studio and production entity. Did they ever give you reasons? Yeah, they were like, you know, movies that have the word future in the title never make any money. Um, <laughs> Especially you know, nobody wants time. Kids. No, no time travel. Time travel movies never make any money. Um, um, 
Disney thought it was too dirty. And, and, the, other, and the other thing that was happening is uh, most of the studios in, that, in, the, in, in those days thought it was too soft. They thought that it should, it needed, if you're going to have a, a movie about young teens, uh, characters that had to be raunchier, had to be more R-rated, uh, except for Disney who thought it was too dirty because of the Oedipal <laughs> thing. Um, so those were the main reasons, is that, they were, that time, time travel was, was something the audiences didn't want to see. So then, well, but then to finish the story, then um, Romancing the Stone came out and was a hit, and suddenly now a lot of these studios wanted to do the movie, but I thought that the appropriate thing to do was to go back to the f first original fan. So then I called Steven and said, okay, so we're, you, you know, if you still want to do this, let's do it. And he said, let's go. And so we, we, we did Back to the Future. A few years ago, we showed the absolutely final definitive version of Blade Runner as part of the mm -hmm. festival. And we had a lot of the crew that came, you know, uh, who made the film. And I remember Lawrence Paul, the production designer, saying that on the set of Blade Runner, they had one computer. It was Doug Trumbull was calculating some of the camera mm -hmm. movements. Uh, by the time you made Back to the Future, had computers or CGI become no, part no. of the... Well, uh, well, the first Back to the Future, no. I mean, the first Back to the Future actually only had 30 visual effects shots in it. Everyone thinks it's a huge special yeah. effects movie, but it's only got 30 shots in it. Um, those were all done. Everyone was locked off. The old-fashioned, noisy, ILM, VistaVision camera. Um, the second Back to the Future, there's a shot of, um, of Michael J. escaping the villains in the tunnel. And it's, he's like being chased by this car, and he's on the hoverboard. And we had a, a, a harness and a rig, and he, he, was, uh, he was being held by a wire that had an armature out from a camera car, and we were kind of flying him alongside, down the road, and he was miming, pedaling. <clears throat> and that was the first CG shot I ever did because they used the computer to graph the cable out. So that was, uh, you know, 19, 19, 1989. Yeah, yeah. So I'm surprised. I thought by then there would have been perhaps no, more no, coming no. In. It wasn't. It, no, not no. The first, uh, the first. Well, I, you, you go down your list, and I'll I'll give you the history of digital cinema as you got because for all the movies after that, it gets it, it it continues. Well, I was wondering, like, for Who Framed Roger Rabbit? I mean, we've all seen Gene Kelly dancing with Jerry the Mouse. Oh, all optical. Yeah, all Not, optical. Oh yeah, there was no every every cell of animation was hand drawn, and every shot was done in old fashioned optical. There was no there was no computer graphics in those days. Wow. So how long a process did that was that uh, Roger doing all that? Yeah, yeah, that was a that was a three year movie. Yeah, that was that was a long time. Yeah, could you talk a little bit aside from the effects, which soon would become very synonymous with your work? How you work with actors? Do you enjoy the sort of process of rehearsal, or how do you usually work with the actors you choose? Yeah, I I love um, well. I call it rehearsal, but we don't really rehearse like you would do in theater or anything like that. We, I, what I, they're just elaborate table readings. And basically, I start out by acting the movie out. Um, and, and I go through, and we go through the entire screenplay from page one, and I sit with the, with the, with the cast, and we just sit around the table for usually a minimum of a week, maybe two weeks, and we just go through the entire screenplay, and everybody um, um, says what they have to say. And, we, and we, we talk it through, and we basically put the characters in therapy. And, and, and that's what we do with the characters, so that everybody understands, because I believe that if you're gonna have a, you know, if you're gonna have a, uh, a misunderstanding, or you don't see eye to eye with an actor, you don't want to have that happen on the set when the big, you know, when the big meter's running. You want to do it here, and and that usually that and that's that's my process. What about the sequels to Back to the Future? When did that come up? And talk about that process of making those. Yeah, well, those were those were those, that was interesting because um, you know Bob and I never wanted to do um, you know we didn't like sequels. We only thought we thought we thought the only, at that time the only movie that had ever made a successful sequel was The Godfather Part Two. In our opinion, we were very snobbish about sequels. Um, 
But when you make a movie like Back to the Future and it becomes as big a hit as it does, it sort of becomes corporate real estate. And we were very, um, you, know, we, you know, when people say, oh, yes, you obviously designed this movie with sequels in mind. And we go, no, we didn't. As a matter of fact, we would never would have put the girl in the car at the end um, because that was nothing but a headache trying to get her out of the movie uh, for the sequels. So, <clears throat> so um, they came to us and said, well, look, you know, here's the deal. <clears throat> We're making these sequels, whether you, you want to be involved or not. Um, it actually was a sequel. It was Back to the Future Part Two, and, um, and so, so Bob and I said, "Well, okay, this is a very rare situation." And what excited us about it was we had his chance. We said, "You know, this is really interesting. We have a I, we have we, we're gonna we can make a sequel about time travel, where we can have characters actually go back in time." let's make a, a sequel where the characters go back into the original movie. And that really got us excited about doing it. And then, of course, we wrote a screenplay that was, I think, 175 pages long. And, you know, this, you know the studio executives said we were insane. And, and I remember Bob Gale, he said to, it was Sid Scheinberg again, he said, you know, um, look, here's an idea, Sid. Why don't we cut the script in half and make two sequels? And there was this long pause, and he said, that's either the most brilliant or insane idea I've ever heard. <laughs> and he said, okay, we'll do them both. And uh, so, because so, the one we really wanted to do was the third one, because that was us going to the Old West. And, and we had it all actually in one giant screenplay. Mm -hmm. um, so then we cut the, the, two, the two movies, and we shot them back to back. Periodically, you've done some TV along the way. And I'm wondering, you talk about doing television and how does it compare to doing films? And have you ever thought of doing a kind of long-form television program? You know, I, well, I, well, you know, I, I did Tales from the Crypt. Um, and that was, I love that because those were short films. Right. And I loved, and I love, and I love, I love anthologies, which I guess I'm the only one in the industry who loves anthologies, because anthology is a dirty word in the television business. But, um, you know, I, I love anthologies, and I loved uh, doing uh, Tales from the Crypt. Um, I, I, you know, I've never really done what I, I don't know, what do you call it now? Is it commercial broadcast television? I mean, I, yeah, I, yeah and I've never done, I, I mean, I, um, you know, we, we, we had a failed series I did with the guys who did Roger Rabbit called Johnny Bago, mm -hmm. and it was on CBS, and it, 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 was, it was ahead of its time. Should have been done on HBO now. It would have been a big hit. Yeah. Maybe go back to it. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Talk a little bit about Forrest Gump. I remember, you know, I admired your work, but when I saw that film, I remember thinking, as much as I admired it, that it seemed to come from I thought a very deep place in you, that this was a film that somehow you had put a lot of yourself in some way in that film. Not that the other films were impersonal, but there was something that really felt, again, very close to you in this. Yeah, if it was, it's really deep down. I mean, I, you know, I, I, I just, uh, I remember reading that first screenplay that, I, that was handed to me, and I remember um, just, I, I just remember feeling, I just couldn't put it down. And it was really, and you know how you know, and 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 in the in the screenplay that I, you know, that I was offered, um, which was very early on, it's really hilarious because um, in that screenplay, if you remember, in the movie, uh, Forrest says he loves Curious George. Well, in that version of the screenplay, Curious George was an animated monkey that were in scenes with him as a little as an alter ego, and. The first thing I said is, I love this, I want to do it, but the, we got to cut all this animation out. Because they said, give it to the guy who did Roger Rabbit, you know, because there's an animated monkey in there. But I said, you got to get rid of the, get rid of the animated monkey. And, um, um, but I remember, I couldn't, I couldn't uh, wait to get to the end. I want to see how that relationship with Jenny was going was to, uh, and, that, and that, I think, is the glue that holds the, holds the movie together. It's, uh, it's a love story, but it's also a story, uh, you know, there's a lot of, um, you, know, uh, you know, the thing that's interesting about Forrest Gump <clears throat> and, and why I think I was, I, I was fascinated by the fact that 
There was no villain. There was no ticking clock. There was no, you know, evil guy with a bomb that was going to destroy the world. And, and yet, it was incredibly dramatic. And um, I thought, wow, that's really interesting. And Forrest is not a character who arcs. He's the same. I mean, he's the same. But it's all these characters around him that, that have these redemptive stories. And, uh, and it's, also, it's, also, it's also a lot about um, different types of grieving, I think. About grief of different, you know, all types of grief. And I think that that's uh, what makes the film a bit cathartic. Talk about using the historical footage in that. What kind of challenges did that pose? Well, again, well, that was, all right, well, now we're getting into the, you know, now we're getting into the, into the birth of the digital cinema. And, um, you know, that was a lot of fun. I mean, because that was, that was my first computer graphic movie where we used the computer to do everything. Um, and, uh, yeah, no, that was the challenge. The challenge was how do we insert, you know, Forrest in this historical footage? How do we animate the, the, you know, the, the, this raw footage and make their mouths move and make them speak. And of course, you look at it now and it's pretty, pretty quaint. Um, but yeah, that was, a, that was a challenge and I learned a lot. And I was actually, I remember being on that, I remember being on that, there's a, there's a, I remember being on the set and going, you know, constantly saying it to uh, Ken Ralston, who was my effects supervisor, are you gonna actually be able to do that? I mean, I'm sitting there, he go, yeah, we'll be okay. You can do that? And I go, you go, yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't worry, Bob. Don't worry. I mean, you know, I remember, I remember that um, very vividly. A film of yours that I haven't seen is *The Pursuit of Happiness*, a documentary that you did for was it Showtime? Showtime. Showtime. Sorry, sorry. But um, talk, yeah. talk about that. Well, it was an interesting concept. It, it was uh, they they came they had this idea of just throwing one word concepts out to directors, um, like money and um, love and. Addiction, and I thought, oh, that's interesting, and you know, and I and I and I sort of delved into that, um, you know, uh, um, that story, and I and I thought it would be, I thought it was really interesting about how in 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 our culture there's so much of music and comedy and all the stuff that revolves around this this kind of really horrible, debilitating disease, and I thought, okay, let me try to let me try to do something, and you know, you know. Just went for it. Did you? I mean, you done documentaries before? No, I wanted to try it. It's it's basically a clip. It's basically a clip documentary, and it has a lot of music in it. But I, I, I put together. Uh, a, 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 no, I never did a documentary. Uh, I did one in film school, a small one, but I never did 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 one. And you know, <laughs> I have to confess, that's like the thing I watch more than anything now. Are docu I mean, I love documentaries. They're you know, they're great. Um, so I wanted to try one, and that was one of the main reasons. And it was it was it was actually a lot of fun interviewing all these people and learning about learning about all this stuff and learning learning about the war on drugs and you know addiction therapy and all that stuff. And and then being able to and then I, I was and then I was on the on the phone endlessly calling the studios and the actors to say, can I use this clip from you know use this clip from you know Pulp Fiction? Can I use this clip from this from that? So. But it turned out good, like, and I liked it, I, and it was fun. Also, with, had a lot of cool music in it too. Mm -hmm. uh, Flight, which most of these folks have seen, also deals with addiction. Do mm -hmm. you see a connection between the two? Is there stuff that? Well, you know, uh, you know. I, well, yeah. I mean, I see it. I see it around me in my life. You know, I see it around me. I think a lot. Of, you know, I think anyway. I, a lot of people have. Um, are touched by this disease. You know, there's they have loved ones. They have friends who. Kind of go through the, you know this 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 um, this debilitating disease. So you know it's certainly on you know it's certainly in uh, you know on my radar. So um, but that's not that's not the that's not the reason that I was attracted to flight. Mm -hmm. But yeah, but that's part of it, of course. Mm -hmm. Starting actually, really, I guess with Forrest Gump, and then a few films after that, Contact and. Um, Cast away, and even I'd say up to flight, you seem to be concentrating more and more on characters who really have kind of an emotional isolation that seem to really cut off from other people. What do you think about that theme in your work or that kind of character? Yeah, I don't know. Uh, it, you know, it, uh, for some reason, I understand it. Um, <laughs> um, I guess I'm attracted to it. Um, 
but I think it's um, I think it's uh, y y you know I think it's it's something that is is universal, and I think a lot of people can can identify with this idea of of you know especially in the world today. I think that that's a, a you know something that we all you know kind of struggle with a bit is that we're we're here, but you know we don't feel part of a lot. And if you don't feel part of, I think, well, I won't, you said most of these folks haven't seen flight, so I won't no, get into maybe. that, okay. But, 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 you know, if, you know, you know, so, you know then I think that um, uh, substance abuse is, a, is, is something that is used to fill that, 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 feel, that void. But the other movies that are, are about this sort of isolation, I guess it's all part of the same kind of thread maybe that's moving through. I don't know, that's, the job for film scholars to do. Right. I, have, I, have, I don't really know. <laughs> One of the things that I love in your film is often how you move the camera. They're just really mm -hmm. wonderful, just lyrical movements. How far in advance do you plan them? Do you plan them at the script stage or is it something really that comes when you're on the set or how do you incorporate your ideas about camera movement? Well, it depends. If it's a big, if it's a big concept shot, which we call a concept shot, like the following the feather in Forrest Gump or something like that, that's planned out way in advance and you know, it's laid out in the location. But generally, um, um, when I'm doing a scene that's just in a, a set with the actors, um, you know, one of my favorite tools is the arm. Now that we have remote heads, I just always, I just set the camera on the arm so I'm ready to go. And um, sometimes it feels like the camera should be moving, other times it, it doesn't. Um, but... Um, you know, I you know, listen. I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a big fan of of David Lean. I'm a, you know big fan of Spielberg. So, you know, camera moves. How do you like to work with your cinematographer? Um, you know, I I work with him just like I work with a just like I work with a, an actor. I mean, we start at the beginning from the, in the script stage, and 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 you know, and and I really try very hard to um, to have the style of the movie grow from the story. I mean, starting from, well, what format should we make this in? Um, um, and so we start there, and then, you know, we start talking about what kind of feel this should have, what kind of lens sizes that we're gonna use, how much is the, you know, any, I mean, again, again, these folks haven't seen Flight, but we have, we have, when you do see it, um, uh, there's a, the camera, the camera very subtly reflects um, uh, the, the character that Denzel plays is Whip, He's, his name is Whip. The camera very subtly um, affects his different levels of intoxication. Um, and so we, we have fun, we do fun stuff like that. Mm -hmm. And that's something you worked out sort of? Oh, you work it out, you say, yeah, so, you know, is. You know, you know, we're gonna have the camera on a on a steady cam and give it a little floaty feel. You know, <laughs> you know, how messed up is Whip here? How much float are we gonna put in? And so we, you know, so that's the kind of thing we do. It's a lot of fun. Talk about the work with the motion capture on Polar Express. How did that come about? You were, I guess, following obviously trends in technology, mm -hmm. right. and how did you decide this is the film I'm gonna use this? Well, we did an extensive test, and I, and I, you know, and I'm polar. You know, I just when I when I when I was researching this, I this this art this this technical form of performance capture, and the idea of um, having uh, having done animation in 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 Roger, in Roger Rabbit, I knew what that was all about, and I and I thought the idea and I, and and and. And here's the thing about animation, and it's a it's a it's you know a beautiful art form. Um, there are things that actors do um, that are um, intuitive, like the way I'm sitting here moving my hand, right, as I'm speaking to you. I'm not an actor, but I'm just a character, you know, doing this. For an animator to do this would take, you know, months and months and months and months and months and incredible amounts of money. Where if you can put a device on an actor, and and he can just do this, and it's you know recorded in the computer, and it can be digitized, and then you can wrap the character's hand around it, 
and you get all that essence of what the actor can do instantly. Um, to me, I always felt that it was, it, was a, it was an art form that was something that was never gonna replace animation. It was never gonna replace live action. It was, I used to call it, or I still call it, uh, but in the day when I was out, out there, um, you know, uh, championing it, it, it was uh, you know, sort of a, a, you could do a graphic, a graphic novel, you know, a moving graphic novel. It had, it had the ability to give you um, a, much, a much more, um, bring more of the actor into the digital character than just the voice. Um, and so I, I thought it was great. And then I loved the idea of, of, of breaking down, making a movie into two different, you know, I, I, I would work with the actors only on their performance, like I was doing workshop, theater workshop, and they would have the markers on, and we would do the scene, and we would do the scene from beginning to end, just like you would do it on the stage, and you wouldn't have to break it up for, you know, you wouldn't have to shoot out of continuity, you wouldn't have to break it up for coverage, and they would just, and the actors were, the actors just set the pace, and they just did it. And then later, in my sandals, I could put my cameras in, and I could create the, I could, I could create all the cinema stuff. And to me, it was, you know, the, 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 um, you know, the perfect blend of, you know, of performance and CGI. When did you know what it would look like? I mean, obviously, you have people there, and they've got these buttons on their face or right. on their clothes and whatever. Did you have at that point the sense of what it's going to look like, or is that really a look that came through the post? Well, it, it evolves through different, many different iterations and tests and, and tweaking, but at some point you have, to, um, you have to model the character and you have to model it. And, it's in, and the reason that it's imperfect at this point in time is that we just need a little bit more computing power. We're just at the mercy, it's, it's ahead of its time because we need more horsepower. And um, it's right around the corner to being, you know, almost, you know, perfect. Um, and it just needs a massive amount of computing power to make it really work. Mm -hmm. What do you see the, as the new frontiers for this kind of technical development or any kind of technical development in cinema right now? What are the frontiers that filmmakers are beginning to explore that you'd like to explore more? Well. You know, I don't. I you know, I I think what's actually happening is everything is becoming a digital stew. I don't think there's any. Um, you know, it's not. It's not like there's this and this and this and this. Everything is 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 a, is is a digital moving image, and it's going to be digital going in, and it's going to be digital in in the cutting room, and it's going to be digital coming out. And I think what you're going to see the the thing that's going to be the most dramatic is you're going to see that. Um, right alongside the editor with his digital editing system, you're gonna have a digital paint box guy. And they're gonna be working right next to each other. And the images, the raw images that are coming in, they're gonna be changed, they're gonna be manipulated, they're gonna be fixed, they're gonna be improved, hopefully. Maybe they'll be ruined, Who do, you know, that all depends. But, they're, but, they, but your, your images are gonna be the image itself is going to be um, digitally manipulated, just like the just like you do when you edit. It's going to be within the body of it. You're going to be able to tweak it however you want it, whatever you how you want it to look. What kind of work is going on the center that you created at USC, the Robert Zemeckis Center for Digital Art? What kind of work do you see students doing there? They do everything there. They do um, everything from. It being just a you know giant sound stages for for film production or where they don't use film at USC anymore or you know cinema production, um, they've got a gaming a gaming uh, uh, facility there. They've got. Um, Have you worked on games yourself? No, I'm not a gamer. I'm not a gamer. I'm you know I, I do this I do this performance capture, but I I, I you know Everybody. I video game. I'm never. I'm, it's not my generation. I've just never never been able to. I don't have the patience for that. I don't know. I don't know why. Um, but um, and they um, and and they've got one of the most um, sophisticated performance capture stages um, in the in the country at SC. And they just and they're going to build a, and they're now going to build an IMAX 3D theater in my building. That, that's just something they're going to start. Mm -hmm. What about 3D? Is that something that you 
want to explore more? Where is that going? Well, you know, 3D, well, you know, everything shouldn't be 3D. You know, 3D should be a tool. It should, be, it should come from the screenplay. I mean, you, you, know, you, 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 you say, okay, should, you know, like flight, flight should never be in 3D. Um, so, you know, it's just so typical of Hollywood, you know, it's like they, you know, they, like they, 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 you know, they kill the golden goose, you know, so, so, um, you know, they, you know, like converting all these movies into 3D after the fact, a, a 3D movie has to be designed from the beginning. It has to, you have to say, we're making this in 3D and you have to figure out how to make it and you got to, you know, you have to have a reason why it's in 3D and everything, everything from what the camera's going to be doing and most importantly the lenses that are going to be used and everything, the way you're going to light it, everything's got to be designed from, from the absolute get-go. Otherwise, it's just going to look like it's a, you know, it's just, it's going to look like what, you know, look, look, look like a mess. Can you talk about your, the Yellow Submarine project? Is that going forward or? That's not going to go forward. Um, um, you know, my interest in that was, um, my interest in that was, uh, you know, creating these CG beetles. You know, that was, uh, that was, and th they, they and that would have been really cool. But, you know, we had this uh, executive shuffle over at Disney. And so that project, um, you know, just, you know, sort of was falling through the cracks. And then I decided, you know, I don't want to do a remake anyway. I think it's, yeah, I don't, you know, I'm not a big remake fan. Um, and I thought, you know, it's probably better not to do, not to, it, it, it's the kind of movie that should be remade because it's not very good. Um, <laughs> you know, and if, you know. The original, the animated one. The original animated one, right. And, and so if you're going to do a remake, you don't want to do a remake of a classic because you're only going to make it worse. You got you to find something that's not very good and then try to make it better. But I don't want to do a remake anyway. And finally, can you tell everybody something about flight? How did the project come to you? And um, you know, uh, you know, my my partner Jack Rapke handed me the screenplay and said, you know, I think you ought to read this. And um, uh, you know, he said it's really good. <laughs> and I said, oh, great. And I read it, and that's how it came to me, exactly like that. Um, and it was um, a project that had been around uh, for a while, and. Um, and then I, and then, you know, I, I immediately heard that it's a project Denzel was hovering around, and I said, "Well, he's perfect." Um, and I, and I thought the screenplay—it's hard to talk. Well, I'll talk about it because you know, even though you haven't seen the movie, but it's again—it's another one of those screenplays where I had to keep reading, get to the end, and that's always a good sign. Um, but also, it, um, it was fascinating in that it, um, everything in the movie was, it was full of moral ambiguity. And nothing, and nothing, there were no characters that were all good, all bad. No one was, had a white hat, no one had a black hat. And yet, with no obvious heroes and villains, it was incredibly dramatic. And I thought, this is really a worthwhile project to, to do. You really get some wonderful performances, Denzel Washington, but really the whole cast is yeah, really, they're all great. Yeah. really terrific. Okay, let's get some questions sure. from everybody out here. Yes, sir. Yeah. Uh, yes. Future platforms for cinema and especially interactive content. You know, I don't know about the interactive thing. Um, it's been tried many, many, many times, and maybe when it, maybe the internet is the way to do it. I, you know, I, I, I don't know. I, I really don't know um, what the I don't I have no idea what uh, the future of cinema the 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 cinema that's been around for a hundred years cinema is going to be. Um, um, the, I guess the question is: Do audiences want to just sit like around a campfire and be told a great story, or do they want to help write the story? Um, you know, I don't know. I think I think there's probably room for both, um, and so um, it, you know I one of the things that's interesting about um, you know what's happening on the internet is it's certainly it's certainly bringing the short film form back, 
Um, the problem with the internet as I see it is I don't know how you, filmmakers are gonna make enough money to be able to produce movies. So many of your films are, are so visually dynamic. I mean, what do you think or do you think about you know, someone watching Polar Express on their iPad, for example? Does it bother you? It's just another form of doing it or? Yeah, you know, I actually, you know, on an airplane, an iPad's not bad. You know, you get, you get, you get those, you know, big, you know, Dr. Dre, you know, uh, headphones, and and you, you know, and you and you and you hold the screen about there, and it's not a bad, it's not a bad it's okay. picture. It's an okay, you know. I mean, hopefully, hopefully, um, it, you know, a movie will inspire someone to. Um, I, I think rather than the rather than to me what i've noticed in 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 my career and i think it's a symptom of the kinds of films that are being made it's not so much about the image it's the watching everything in isolation and um that's okay for some films but um uh you know, without ever being able to hear and feel a, a, a large audience responding emotionally to a movie, even if they're not doing anything, is kind of a sad to think that that might go away. And when I said that thing about the, what I what I what I I think that one of the one of the reasons why movies look the way they do, meaning the types of movies that are being made, is because people who are making the movies and people who are deciding what movies to make don't see movies in, with audiences that often. So, you know, I mean, you know, I think it would be tragic if, for example, you didn't know that, you know, if you never got to experience, like in Jaws, there's a shot when Roy Scheider is on the boat and he steps from a step into, into the boat where there's a foot of water that's in the boat. And the audience screams. Because they just, you know, know, know that, if, that is, if his foot goes near any water, there's a shark there, even though there's no shark there. You would never know that watching the movie on video. You have to have like 400 people in a theater to get that, that visceral reaction. So, I don't know. I so mean, it's really the theatrical experience more than the particular medium. I think I think so, and and I think it, it it's a you know you know I, I mean films you know films are more fun to watch. With a with a group of people, they're just more fun. Um, but hey, you know, if it goes, it goes. Yes. This viewer says that many of your films deal with a kind of loss of innocence, and do you think that think of that as a thread going through your work? No, I, I mean, I, I, it's probably there, but I don't really, you know, that would have to. That that's something that I would have to go into deep therapy to. To, to, to sort of that's uh, why we're here, Bob. I know, no, no, and it's all good, and it's all good, and I and it's and it's helping me, and it's helping me, and but I I I um I I really never I really have never thought about the fact that um I'm just here sitting thinking like okay let me think where's the loss of innocence and in, um death becomes her uh, one of the movies you didn't mention uh, one of my favorite movies you didn't mention uh, um so anyway I was just kind of racking my brain so anyway. Okay, yes. What's your favorite guilty pleasure? You mean uh, that, that, I, that somebody else made? Somebody else made. Um, well, <laughs> all the William Castle movies. <laughs> the but tingler. I don't consider them bad, though. No, 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 they're good. I mean, I mean good for what they were. I don't, I don't you know, um, you know, I don't... You know, it, you know. I guess. I guess. Why the reason I'm struggling is if I like it, I don't consider it to be consider it to be bad. You know, I just. Uh, um, I, yeah, that's. I guess. You know, I guess it would be like really badly made B movies that I just love the the audacity ago, of them. You know, years ago they used to do the the ten worst films ever made film festivals and whatever. I remember the gentleman right here. Yes, you, sir. This person wondered how much freedom he gives to his actors. Well, I don't. I'm not a big improv guy, um, and 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 I and I got and I don't and I've I have never really um, 
Yeah, Jim. You know, Jim Carrey is is a guy you got to give a lot of got to give a lot of a lot of space to. Um, and um, but um, because you know, because he just you know, you just know don't know where the gem is going to sometimes come from. Um, but um, but basically, you know. Um, I, it's more mechanical stuff that I, I always collaborate with the, with the cast on, because like I say, the lines and things like that were pretty much um, worked out ahead of time. But I'm good, you know, what I do, what, basically what I do is, uh, I sort of have a rough idea of how I want to shoot the scene, and then I have the cast come onto the set, I have them come out of makeup or whatever, and we do what I call a wander through. I say, you know, I was thinking maybe you come in here and you sit there and you do this. And then they might say, well, you know, I was thinking maybe I go over by the window and stand. And I go, all right, that's okay. Or, or, or gee, no, that would, you know, that, we couldn't light that or whatever. And we sort of work it out together. Um, but once the camera's rolling um, and we got, it, we got it blocked out, then I, you know, then it's just basically little things where an actor might, you know, reinterpret the line. And that's all good, you know. They say it more; it feels more natural as long as the, you know, as long as they haven't destroyed what the, what the, you know, intent of the line is as far as the screenplay is concerned. But as far as actors basically thinking up scenes while the camera's rolling, I'm, I'm not a big fan of that. Okay. Yes, over here. Which was the most difficult for you film for you technically, and what's your favorite of your films? Well, I made a lot of difficult films. Um, Technically, for different reasons, obviously, obviously, Roger Rabbit was very difficult to make. Contact was very, very difficult to make. Castaway was very, very difficult to make, but all for different reasons. Um, uh, Castaway because we were out on the water and in Fiji, and um, Roger Rabbit for obvious reasons. And Contact was a massive special effects movie. Forrest Gump was tough to to make because every scene in that movie was a we were opening a new location. We had more locations in that movie. I don't even know the number. It was huge. Every scene took place. We never used the set twice. A um, couple, couple, couple times at Forest House, but that was it. Um, and I can't name my favorite because it's like your children, you know. <laughs> you can't, you can't, you can't. You can't. I love them all for different reasons. So all the way in the back there. Is there any sense of there being a, Robert, a Roger Rabbit sequel using motion capture? No, How, but <clears throat> uh, that's the motion capture part. Um, if I did a Roger Rabbit sequel, I would use hand-drawn animation. Well, it might be digitally drawn, but it would be drawn uh, animation. And uh, yeah, I would, uh, you know, there's a great script for, uh, a Roger Rabbit sequel written by the original writers sitting at Disney, and hopefully when they get finished with their executive shuffle, it'll it'll rise to the top because it's it could be really cool. But I would I would do it so it looks like the original movie. When Bob Hoskins was acting, for example, with the tune characters, was there anyone in the frame with him? Or no, in those days we couldn't graft anybody out. So he, what we would do is we would rehearse the scene with. Well, for Jessica, we would use an actress because she was life, life, life size. But Roger, we would have, we had this little foam rubber Roger Rabbit doll, and I would puppeteer it. And, and Charlie Fleischer would be off to the set, who insisted on having a costume made. He, he, he made, you know, he was, he, so he always did the voice live with the actors. He was on the set every day doing Roger. And, um, and then, he would do the voice, Bob would be acting, and I would move this rubber Roger around, and we lay out the shot, and... Um, and you, used, you moved it so that Bob would have a point of reference? Or? Yes, and here's the tricky part, and this was, is, is and, and then Bob would have to memorize where the, the, the rabbit was going, and he couldn't look at targets that were out of frame, because he would be focusing past Roger, and then it would look like he was looking through him, and it wouldn't look like he was looking at him. So he, li he literally had to focus on a um, point in space. And of course, you know, when I said, you know, you know, in the middle of the movie, I said, Bob, you know, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, you have to w work with nothing there. He said, it's all right, I work with some actors, and it's the same. <laughs> 
<laughs> yes, sir. What films or filmmakers influenced you most when you were growing up? Well, they were, all, you know, the, you know, the great American, the great American directors, you know, um, uh, Hitchcock, uh, Stanley Kubrick, um, Frank Capra. Uh, the the movie, the movie that um, I saw, <clears throat> I was a, a freshman in high school, I think, where I decided to find out exactly what a director does, because I really kind of didn't know. I went to movies because if, if they had a lot of action or effects in them, but I really didn't, um, was when I saw Arthur Penn's Bonnie and Clyde. And I remember feeling, um, you know, moved emotionally. And I said, wow, this is, this is powerful. I gotta find out what's going on here. And so that was one of my, that was a traumatic movie for me. To get, you know, to get me, you know, turn me into a movie geek. <laughs> yes. Why was there a 12-year pause between your strictly live-action movies and will you go back to animation? Oh, you know, I don't have an agenda. I really don't. I mean, I, 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 um, I love the digital cinema and I w was having a, you know, a great time and, uh, you know, and it's been, you know, it was really, it was really... And I worked with so many amazing actors in, 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 uh, on those three films, those three films that I had just done, those three digital films. Um, and again, it all just, you know, I really, I really, don't, I really don't put a, um, a style of film out there and like, you know, I'm, I, for example, I don't have anyone out there, you know, I'm, I'm out there saying, I have to do a musical. Um, if one comes along, it would be great or whatever the next, what, so I, I try to really not react to anything but do what, you know, if a fine screenplay comes around. So if a digital screen, a movie that would be done in 3D digital and it's a magnificent screenplay, I'd do that. If another live action or a screenplay comes out, should be done 2D live action, I'll do that. Would you ever be interested in doing a purely animated film a la Toy Story or, or things like that? Oh yeah, if the screenplay if the screenplay were great, absolutely, absolutely. I mean, because, I mean, you know, it's they're not easy to do. Right. I mean, they're not easy to do. It, you know, they they're 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 like directing a live action movie, except the acting takes a really long time. <laughs> okay, a few more. Yes, sir. This question was regarding his transition from a writer to a director. Well, just to set the record straight, uh, you know, I, I, I wrote the screenplay for A Christmas Carol, and I wrote the screenplay for Polar Express. They were both adaptions. I don't want to take any credit from Charles Dickens. Um, but, but, um, His agents are very active. Right, 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 right. Um, but no, and actually, and actually it's, I've always wanted to be a director. But one of the things that I realized... Um, and one of the things I think has served me very well as a director, one of the things I learned in film school was <clears throat> you have to write. You have to write. If you're gonna be a director, you have to write. And Bob Gale, when we were in, when we were in film school together, he wanted to be a screenwriter. I mean, that was, he loved screenwriting, he loved, he loved writing movies. And, and, but I always wanted to be a director. Um, so we, we, we collaborated and, um, um, but I, I really try to call myself a filmmaker and, um, you know, <clears throat> you know, I'm writing on the sound mixing stage. That's the final rewrite. You know I mean? I mean, so, I mean, you know, you, 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 you know, when you're making, when you're directing a movie, you're writing, you're just writing with images and you're not writing with words. And that's the interesting thing about the digital cinema, because we're going to get to a point where... You're going to be able to like. This is going to sound, you know, really, you know, for science fiction. But basically, type in a, you know, type a movie on a key on a keyboard, and, and a moving image is going to come out. And you know, it's it's um, it, it's going to be interesting because everything. The thing that's good. The thing that all this digital stuff is going to do is going to bring everything back to the writing everything back to the writing, because digital filmmaking is basically writing with moving images. You know, it's not like you, you don't, you're probably not gonna need, you know, the old war horse 
army general directors anymore, you know? Because you'll be able to go, because if your actor doesn't do what he, you know, what, what you wanted him to do, well, you just go back into the computer and fix it. Make him do what you want him to do, you know, so at, at some point. We didn't have a chance to talk about sound. And could you talk about working with sound in some of your films or how you like to go about it? You know, it's sound. been digital forever. It's been digital. <laughs> no, I, I, I make that joke all the time. Nobody ever asks whether you're recording your sound digitally or not. Um, <laughs> the um, sound, sound is vitally important. It's vitally important. And, uh, you know, I was, you know, I was very, very... Um, lucky to work with uh, brilliant sound people very early in my career. Um, you know, really the ace guys. Um, and I think sound is, is, is just as important as a performance. It's really, it's really up there. Okay, time for a few Yes, ma'am. The next question was in two parts. The first was, what makes a great screenplay? And the second part was regarding Zemeckis' work in the studio system. They asked whether executives often got in the way of his creative process. Yeah, well, you know, uh, uh, to answer the second question first, um, yeah, meddling and 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 sort of committee committee writing, I don't think has ever turned out to be successful. I think you have to have a singular a singular vision to really make a to to, to write a a to make a good movie and uh, and specifically to to write a good screenplay. Um, the thing that's interesting about screenplays, of course, is that nothing happens by accident. You know, so, you know, it's not like you can just hit keys and some great line comes out. Um, so everything is, there's obviously a brain behind every single thing. That's why I'm always um, an advocate of, <clears throat> no matter what the studio thinks, have the original writer of the original screenplay. He's got to be, he's, he's, he's the... He's the creative soul of this thing, um, probably because I'm a writer. Um, um, and to answer your question, I think you know, uh, you know, uh, you know, great characters make great screenplays. I really think that's the 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 you know. I don't even know. I don't know how to do a movie if it doesn't have a, a character that has some kind of an arc. I you know that, that's what I hang the whole movie on. I don't even know how. To, I wouldn't even know how to do a. Um, you know, movie if it wasn't a character that w it wasn't in some sort of a moral dilemma, if you will. How often do you mm. know which actor will be the character uh, when the screenplay is just being written? Do you immediately imagine which actor will be in it? or? Well, I knew Tom was going to be the guy in Castaway because it was his idea. <laughs> um, that um, answers that. that. that right, right. But, 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 aside from, but aside from that, um, you know, it's, it's, you know, what happens to me is I, I can ask, if I could answer that when I'm writing, when I'm writing, you know, I think of different actors as I write every line. Oh, this line, Nicholson would be great doing this line. And, you know, you know Hanks would be great. If he would deliver this. I kind of like, mix them all up and I have kind of a shadow of um, uh, you know kind of like a like, a, like a, a shadow of what who the character would be but when you when I think that when I read a screenplay the first thing that happens more than figure, figuring out who would be perfect for the part for me is I know who I can eliminate um, so I start okay okay these guys are all aren't gonna work and then you got to start looking for the right guy okay one last one right back there yes you men right how has the explosion in television affected contemporary filmmaking in America, all the sort of great series that are on? And certainly a lot of my students at Columbia are wildly, in, much more interested in that than they are in contemporary films. Right. But you're talking about all television or cable television? Cable. Cable. Oh, okay. Okay. That I can speak to. Okay. That I can speak to. I can speak to cable television. Um, well, um, um, I remember, I remember an interview back in that I, that I remember reading. I think it did, uh, John Frankenheimer, he was one of the original Playhouse 90 guys when he was a young guy. And, and somebody went to him and said, you know, when you guys were making those Playhouse 90s in the early 50s, they were all so great. Everything was great. What happened? And he said, everybody started watching. <laughs> and... and and I kind of think, and I kind of think that 
that's the problem. That, that, where I see the flip happening is um, because of the cost that it takes to make a movie and the cost that it takes to market a movie. If you make a movie and it costs $120 million, everybody in the world has to go see that movie. And if everybody in the world has to go see that movie, then by definition it can't be about anything. So um, <laughs> what, you, what happens in television is you get to do stuff that's edgy and you get to do stuff that's you know, you know, you know, complicated and you get to do stuff that's dramatic. And because you're, you know, the, you know, the whole fate of a studio isn't resting on this one movie. And so I think that the problem with movies is that they are just, you know, you, 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 there's just, they just cost too much money. And so they, you know, they suffer. And the very last thing, I have a feeling there are a number of prospective filmmakers out here, aspiring filmmakers, advice for them. <clears throat> well, um, you know, uh, what I've always said was, was right, because believe me, you know, good idea, a good idea uh, for a movie is, um, is really is really will really be at a premium, um, but I guess also you know in now in the now in the digital age I mean you can just shoot 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 you know make movies make movies you know and write and make movies and um, um, that's what I would that's what I would recommend anything aside from that uh, everybody's got a there's no pattern everybody's got their own their own story. Okay, Bob, thank you so much for thank coming you. and doing this dialogue with us. Thank you. Appreciate it. Thank, thank you. you very much. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Yeah. The Close-Up from the Film Society of Lincoln Center is produced by Nick Kemp and Michael Odemark. Our opening music is by Steelism. You can subscribe to The Close-Up on iTunes and Stitcher. The Film Society of Lincoln Center is a nonprofit arts organization based in New York City, supported by individuals just like you. Founded in 1969 to celebrate American and international cinema, the Film Society presents year-round programming recognizing established and emerging filmmakers, supporting important new work, and enhancing awareness, accessibility, and understanding of the moving image. To learn more about what we do and support the Film Society by becoming a member, please visit filmlink.org, F-I-L-M-L-I-N-C.org. The Film Society of Lincoln Center. Film lives here. <laughs>